Well, now we're going to turn to God's word again, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 17. And uh, this morning, as you're already gathering and noticing, we're going to take a one week pause in our sermon series on the book of Ezekiel. We've been in Ezekiel for a total of 12 or 13 weeks And I do intend to preach another five weeks or so through the last uh, couple of major sections in that incredible uh, book of prophecy as we get to the end. Um, But I felt it good to pause here on this Sunday for for multiple reasons. I'm just going to give you two really quickly. First, the Transfiguration is one of the five major milestone events in the life of Jesus. There's the baptism. There's this event, the transfiguration, there's Christ's crucifixion, the resurrection and the ascension. These are major milestone moments in the life and ministry of Jesus. Famous ancient theologians like Thomas Aquinas, maybe many of you have heard of Aquinas. He thought so highly of this event as to call it the greatest miracle recorded in the Bible, the transfiguration. So it's good to pause here simply because this is an incredible moment in the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus. And this is the Sunday that the global church traditionally pauses to ponder this moment. So we're going to join the church in doing that. But another reason is this. Reading about the transfiguration is like taking in a cold glass of water on a hot day. Or maybe a day like today, we should reverse the analogy, right? Like a hot, hot cup of cocoa on a cold day or something like that. It just gives life to the bones, makes you feel good. It brings some needed refreshment and strength. Going through a book like Ezekiel, which is rich and challenging, can also be like walking through a hot desert. It's a hard book. Ezekiel's hard. I can see your expressions as we've gone through it together. Maybe you've seen my expressions. It's a tough book to preach as well. So today we're going to take a look at the transfigured Jesus. And I hope to get some wind in our sails and some real uh, strength and encouragement. And in fact, one of the things we're going to see is that the disciples, uh, too, were actually quite weary from some news that Jesus had just given them. They were weary. And the mountaintop was just the medicine that he decided to give them to bring strength and courage to their hearts. So as we are going through a tough book, Ezekiel, maybe some of us are feeling like we're in a desert, we're going to go up on the mountaintop with Jesus for a Sunday and hopefully be really strengthened and refreshed. So that's why we're here this morning, and I pray this story refreshes your spirit. So I'm going to invite Scott forwards to read out of Matthew 17, uh, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of God. Thanks, Scott. From Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9, I believe it's page 977 in your pew Bibles, or it should be up on screen. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, And led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And behold there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. Talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus. Lord 
It is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Thank you, Scott. Let's pray. God, we pause once again as we come to your word, just recognizing that we are impotent. Uh, We are unable to put into practice these things apart from your divine empowering and your help by your spirit. So come now and indwell us, Holy Spirit. Teach us your thoughts, for your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. Help us, we pray. Minister to us, teach us, and help us to have a submissive heart towards what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. God knows what you need this morning. Right now, he knows what you need. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God knows your situation? He knows what you need. But also, God knows the best time to give us the things we need. Our God is a master of not only giving us good gifts, knowing what we need, but knowing precisely when We need to have those things. He knows precisely when we most need them. Maybe we could say it that way. Often, when we pray and ask God for something and he says no, in many cases, not in every case, because sometimes God does say no, but in many cases, it's really just him saying, wait, now's not the time. Now is not the time. The timing of God's gifts is critical. Some of you will remember a story I shared some five years ago that involved a baseball. Now, some of you are new, and I'm grateful for that, so I'm going to share the story again. It'll be new again to, to some of you, but not to others. But we were visiting my family in Charlotte, North Carolina. Felicia, you, you don't have it? Okay, no worries. Sorry, I didn't manage to get it to you. We were visiting my family in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the boys all wanted to go to a baseball game. So we decided we would go see the Charlotte Knights play. They're a professional uh, AAA baseball team in downtown Charlotte. I was hoping I could show you a picture of the field, but we're having issues with our Dropbox. But somehow that day we got the idea in our heads that we should ask God for a foul ball. 
I think my sister Erin may have referred to how neat it would be to get a foul ball. So we thought, why not? Let's pray. So we bowed our heads before we went to the game with the kids, gathered around, and, and we prayed for a foul ball. My wife and I prayed what seemed at first uh, to be a silly prayer. God, would you please allow us to get a foul ball tonight? We talked to the kids about it and really, really pumped it up. We knew it was not a big thing, maybe to us, but to our kids especially, and to my five-year-old son at the time, this represented something much more significant, right? We wore our gloves almost the whole game. So it was me, my son, and my dad that ended up going kind of some man time together we wore our gloves almost the whole game and i must have leaned over to my son a hundred times and said get ready for that foul ball buddy in my head i was just praying over and over again lord please give us a foul ball just give us a story to remember we had a blast at the game it was a great time But after a great game and a great time, we decided to go home. It was about the eighth inning, and it was going on 10 o'clock. We hung our heads a little about not getting a foul ball. We didn't end up getting the foul ball that we had hoped for. And if I'm honest, I was going into my cynical mode a little bit. You ever really want something, pray hard for something, and it just doesn't happen And I was kind of going into that cynical mode. Of course, I made a heel out of myself and I pumped this thing up and then it doesn't happen. And I just end up looking like a fool. And who knows what my son's thinking and my dad's thinking. And I was all prepared to start talking to my son about how God sometimes chooses to say no to our requests. When about 10 minutes after leaving the stadium in downtown Charlotte, we are walking down the sidewalk and we hear a pop and then a thud. We turn around to see a foul ball laying in the bushes right behind us. The batter had hit the foul ball completely out of the stadium and into the middle of the empty street. It bounced one time and landed in a bush about five feet behind us. It was about 10 o'clock, so there was nobody on the street except us. We were all alone. There was maybe one person about 100 yards down the street. Our perfect God wanted me and my son and my dad to be on that street alone so that he could send us that ball. It was like God hand-delivered it to us. We didn't have to run after it. We didn't have to fight somebody for it. You see those moments in the stands, right? Some great superstar hits a foul ball or a home run and the guys are like over there tackling each other to get the ball. We didn't have to do that. It was like God almost was winking at us. There's the ball right there. But Why do I share this with you? Because timing is so very important. It would have been great to just get a foul ball while we were inside the stadium, but God wanted the moment to be different. He wanted to choose the perfect time to give us a special gift. I will always remember that, and I hope my dad and my son do too. But today, in our story, 
we have a remarkable gift that God gives to his closest three disciples. The gift is an amazing, unspeakably incredible gift. But the timing is also just right. This morning, I want us to pause and look at the timing of this gift, this event called the transfiguration and think about what it meant for the disciples and what it might mean for us today. So here's the big idea I want to try and and get across. Because our loving God's timing is always perfect. We should trust him to give us all we need exactly when we need it. Because our loving God's timing is always perfect, we should trust him to give us all we need exactly when we need it. I want us to look at the the big idea piece by piece. And I don't normally do it that way. I normally just build off of one part of the big idea and make several points about that one part. But this morning I want to do it a little differently. So let's look at each piece first. Let's look at that phrase, because our loving God, because our loving God. The Bible teaches us that God is love. Do you know how radical that idea is? That's actually a very radical and relatively in the history of humanity and religion. New concept. Today, many people just take it for granted that God is loving, but no other major world religion teaches that God is love. And that people like you and like me can have a personal, intimate relationship with him. This is unique to the Christian faith. Some will describe their own faith that's maybe not Christian um, and say that that's actually not true. But if you study the world religions, if you study Confucianism, Buddhism, Hinduism or Islam, you won't find this idea of a personal, of, of of an intimate relationship, a personal relationship with the loving God. Those concepts are foreign to the overwhelming majority of major world religions. Our God is loving. Look with me at verse 1 in our passage today. I just want to show you just a little. There's so much in God's word for us that's, uh, that's there for us to mine and to explore. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Just think about that. Notice here that Jesus took these men up on the mountain with him. Jesus wanted to spend time with these men. Jesus loved these men. What do you do when you love someone? Well, one of the things I hope you do is spend a little time with them, right? You want to be around them. And maybe more than anything else, you want to get quality time with them. Not just, you know, be with everybody else and the person that you love. You want to get some quality time, maybe some alone time, some focused time with the people you care about. Maybe you do something special with them. Jesus here wanted some quality time with Peter, James and John. He loved them. Our God is love. And he offers this same experience to you. He says, come away with me. He invites you into a personal relationship with himself, just as he did with these three men and with the other disciples. 
But like any relationship, if you want it to go deeper, you've got to pursue it, right? You've got to work on it. Are you pursuing time alone with Jesus? Or are you just squeezing God into the margins of your day here and there? Is that what you do with your loved ones that are in your family or in your life? You squeeze them in here and there? I hope not. No, you make time for them, right? So I want to ask you, are you making time for Jesus? God loves you and is inviting you away with him. Go with him. Take that time. And it's often in those times you'll truly see him as Peter, James, and John did. Have a deeper glimpse, a better picture of who he truly is. So that's the first thing I wanted us to see. God loves these men and he loves you and is inviting you into a personal relationship with himself. This leads us to that next phrase. God's timing is always perfect. Again, I'm kind of working slowly through the, the big idea or whatever. God's timing is always perfect. Now, if I were to pass this baseball that I just shared that really amazing story about with you, if I were to pass this baseball around the room, you would not think much of it, right? You would look at it and say, okay, yeah, you can see the, that's probably the street right there, Mark, where it landed right in the middle of the asphalt there. Um, maybe that's where the bat hit it, but you could look at it and, you know, maybe get a, you know, a little nugget or two about something about what happened to the ball, but it doesn't look like much. It's looking at the ball by itself doesn't have the power that it does when it's connected to the story that I shared, you know, a few moments ago. When you know the story, it's powerful, it's rich, it's meaningful. Well, the transfiguration is certainly a powerful moment, even when read by itself. If you just come to, you know, to whatever the gospel passage is, it's uh, Matthew 17 before us here, and Mark has an account, and Luke has an account of the transfiguration. If you were to look at any one of those in isolation, you would say, wow, this is, this is interesting. This is powerful. What's going on here? But it may even be more powerful when we see it in its context, when you see the bigger picture of what's happening, when you connect it to the surrounding story. So if you have your pew Bible open, I encourage you to do that. What was the page number? 977? Okay, yeah. If you've got one there or your own personal Bible, feel free to open it up and don't Feel like you have to, but but it will help with the illustration I'm going to make here. If you have your pew Bible, open it up and you'll look. And if you just right there, I mean, in the pew Bible, it's on the same page, literally. <clears throat> what it is here in my personal Bible. Yes, I mean, right there, boom. You don't even have to flip a page. You know, my Bible, I think it's like that in the pew Bible, but it's it's that close. And what you're going to see is um, Matthew's words. Look at Matthew's words right before this section, right there. Again, almost right on the same page, verses 21 and following. And I'm going to skip a couple pieces just for, um, you know, for what I'm trying to do here. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then down to 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? That's right before the transfiguration. Maybe there's a few days gap. Okay, but in the Bible, what we have recorded right before this mountaintop experience are these words. And that's true in any of the Gospels. If you go to Mark's account or Luke's account, you'll see the same words and events happening leading right up to the transfiguration. And basically what's going on here is they're just beginning to grasp who he was. Peter confesses right there before those words. He confesses, finally, Jesus, I know you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. He's kind of grilling them. It's like they're around the campfire. And Jesus is saying, who, who, do, you say, who do people say that I am? Well, some people say this, some people say that. And he looks at him and says, but who do you say I Who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He gets it. Lights are going off, right? You're the one that God sent, that God promised so long ago. And you're here. They're just starting to get it. And then he brings this hard news. But I'm going to die. And I'm going to be betrayed and killed and crucified. And it's going to be terrible. And then he says, I'm going to be raised. Right? And he's, well, then he says this thing about have to carry, you know, I'm going to die and you're going to have to carry your cross. And it's going to be really hard, really tough for you to follow me, basically. Following me is going to be like death, he basically says. You're going to have to deny yourself. It's going to be costly. And he does throw in the resurrection thing, but it's almost like they don't hear that part, right? But this is the last thing that Matthew chooses to share with us before this moment on the mountaintop. And not just Matthew, again, the other Gospels as well. All three of the accounts had this order. Here's the order. First, you've got Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. Right, you're the one who's God, God has promised. You're the coming one. Second, Jesus foretells his crucifixion by the religious leaders. Almost like right after that. Yeah, but I'm going to die. I'm not the kind of Messiah you think I am. I'm a different kind of Messiah. The one that the, the Old Testament actually spoke about, right? That's me. Third, Jesus teaching on denying yourself and carrying your cross. And then the transfiguration. This is the order that we find. The basic order that we find in all the Gospels. Except John. John doesn't have the story in it. But what might Jesus be doing here then? So we get the sense that the order is important because it's repeated in all of the, of the synoptic Gospels. The three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The order is repeated. So it must be significant. The inspired writers of Scripture are showing us that this order is important. There's something about the timing then about the of the transfiguration that is significant. Many scholars have noted that it's right here in this moment in Jesus's ministry where things begin to take a darker turn. Those of you who read your Bibles regularly and are familiar maybe with this, the teaching of the Gospels, you'll know that before this, Jesus is basically laying the foundations for his ministry. He's massively popular. Huge followings. Thousands upon thousands of people are following him out into the wilderness and he's performing miracles and they're listening to his teaching. He was massively popular. And then suddenly, when the disciples, when it clicks, everything begins to change. And Jesus begins to tell them, it's not going to be like this forever, guys. Like, I'm going to die. This is why I came, was to give my life as a ransom for many. And it's right here, in the midst of or right on the tail end of this really kind of popular time 
in Jesus's ministry, especially amongst the common people. He's performing miracles, his movements growing. But right here in this week of Jesus's life, something changes. And we just read right there in Matthew uh, 16, verse 21. From that time, you hear that word, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And we know that this greatly distressed them because they, it basically appears from the passage that they don't even hear the part about him rising from the dead. They almost completely ignore it. Or at least Peter, right? I mean, if you read the rest of, of that part right there in chapter 16, we touched on chapter 16, and Jesus said, you know, I'm going to be killed and all that. Well, Peter, which we talked about this last week, goes right up to Jesus and says what? May it never be, Lord. It's not going to happen. Not on my watch, basically. Right? Peter didn't even get the part about the resurrection or so it appears anyway. All they heard was that their master, the Lord, the Messiah, was going to die. How can that be? I mean, he hasn't done half of the things that, that we expect him to. Maybe this is what they're thinking. He hasn't even done this or done that. How can it be that he's going to die? And it's right during that time of despair and anxiety about his words that Jesus says, I'm going to take my core group up on the mountain. I'm going to take them up on the mountain. In the midst of that confusion, this disillusionment, whatever they were feeling after hearing that he's going to die, let's go up on the mountain. Timing. God's timing is always perfect. Do you see the strategic place of this moment, perhaps, um, in Jesus' ministry? In that moment, the disciples no doubt needed to know a bit more about their master. They needed some courage so he takes them up on the mountain and gives them a glimpse of who he truly is. And what do they see? What do they see up on the mountain? This leads to our third part of the big idea. That we should trust him to give us all we need. We should trust him to give us all we need. <clears throat> now, if you're like me and you're reading this, you just want Jesus to change the story, right? As if you're tracking with the disciples and Jesus is saying, I'm going to die and I'm going to suffer all these things. You're like, if you're like me, you're like Peter. You're like, no, just you're, you're, you're this great Messiah guy. Just change the story, right? Certainly you have the power maybe to do that. We don't want him to die, even though we know now after the fact that he needed to die. And that was for our best, right? And, and for God's glory. It's part of the plan. But in the, in the moment, if you're like me, you're reading this and it's heart-wrenching. Here's this amazing person that's filled with love and compassion and truth. And he's saying he's going to die. Maybe you've watched a movie and just hated the way a certain part of the movie goes. And you just want to change it. You ever had a movie like that where you're like, I really don't like that part. I remember when I first saw The Lord of the Rings. And uh, Gandalf died. And it just, sorry, some of you have never seen the movie. Spoiler, spoiler, right? It just destroyed me when, I, when he died at first. I was like, how can he die? This is why I'm watching the movie, basically. Because I love Gandalf. But of course, we know he comes back later. Anyway, spoiler alert. Right? He comes back later. But in the moment, I was like, how can he die? How can this guy die? So if you're like me, at this point 
in the gospel story, you're empathizing with the disciples and you're just like, how can Jesus say he's going to die? Where is this going? But this moment on the mountaintop is going to show us that God knows better than we do. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Isaiah 55. What this means is that we often don't even know what we most need. Right? Think about that. When Peter is rebuking the Lord, saying, may it never be that you die. Jesus' death is the thing he most needs more than anything else. Are we not like that sometimes? We don't even know what we need. Don't even understand it. We're thinking one thing while God is thinking another. The disciples don't didn't need to change the story. They didn't need or they didn't need Jesus to not die. Quite to the contrary. That's exactly what they needed. So Jesus gives them what they most need. In this season of doubt and despair, what do you think they most needed in that moment? Yes, eventually the death of Christ and the resurrection, but in this moment, in the transfiguration, what's going on there? What is Jesus doing? What is He giving them? They needed more of Himself. They needed more of Jesus. That's what they most needed in that moment he gives them himself what jesus is essentially doing there on the mountaintop without getting into all the the million details that are there but with these three close friends and disciples in verses two through five what he's doing there is giving them a more accurate understanding of who he truly and really and most deeply is and that is what they most needed all of the various elements that are mentioned there in that text his clothes the face shining like the sun Moses and Elijah, the voice from heaven, all of these things are revealing to the disciples that Jesus is not just a prophet or a revolutionary or a great teacher or a religious genius. He is God come down to us and for us. And they are getting to see that. And the brutal death that he was to undergo was not because of true weakness or inability It was an act of love. Christ would enter into death willingly only to defeat it and destroy it. These men, even though they did not fully understand what was happening in this moment, they were given all that they needed in that moment. And this is exactly what God gave Moses and Elijah many years before Peter, James, and John. Without going into all the details, you know both Moses and And Elijah had very famous encounters with God on the mountaintop also. Those of you, again, who know the story of the Bible, it's okay if you don't. There's these two major figures in the Old Testament, one named Elijah, one named Moses. Elijah was a great prophet, sort of represented the the quintessential prophet. Moses was the lawgiver, the one who represented the essence of the law and, and gave the law to the people. Both of those people appear here in this moment with Jesus, obviously signaling they're not dead, they're alive, they're with God in heaven, but also so much more. They're saying these things, the prophets and the law, were both pointing to this guy, Jesus. Okay? But both of those men had encounters with God on the mountaintop. Elijah went up fleeing from Queen Jezebel. Some of y'all remember that story. He was afraid 
There was the quaking of the mountains and earthquakes and all these things. God was not in those things. And it had this, there's this little line that says there was a still small voice. And Elijah had this moment where he had to listen to God and seek for God up on the mountain. Moses, likewise, goes up on the mountain and he asks God, show me your glory. But it was both of those brothers, both Elijah and Moses, these, Moses, these men of God, are on the mountaintop in moments of despair. And again, I won't go into all of the details, but they were not on, they were not in the best times of their life. We'll put it that way. They were facing tremendous challenges. And it was then that God appointed these encounters on the mountaintop. They were not given, even in those encounters up on the mountain, they were not given easy answers or quick fixes to their troubles. They are given what? They're given encounters with God. Right? Elijah, very different kinds of encounters, but they're given encounters with God. And here we find the same with Peter, James, and John. In a time of great distress, God gives them a glimpse of his glory. And this is what all of us most need. We need to see Jesus. We need to know Jesus. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the one true God, and his son, Jesus Christ. That is life. That is the answer, not to all of your problems, but to your deepest problems. That is the answer. And if you get that deepest problem solved and fixed with God, the other things in time will get much better as well. And that leads us to the last part of the big idea. Exactly when we need it. So God gives us all we need. Most deeply himself, most importantly himself. Exactly when we need it, because our loving God's timing is always perfect. We should trust him to give us all we need exactly when we need it. When I was at that baseball game with my dad and with my son, I was asking God to give us a ball all throughout the game. But I didn't need a ball during the game. In fact, truth is, I didn't need a ball at all. I created this whole situation myself, right? Or seemingly myself, I know God was working. But really, in the grand scheme, my desire was pretty insignificant. Really small thing to have a souvenir, a ball, right? Yet because I had pumped it up so much, I felt like it felt like a really big thing. And by the end of the game, I had created a major pickle for myself. And I had some explaining to do to my young son. And it was in that moment, when I was in my head, wrestling with my doubts and my cynical self and my frustrations and the mess that I had created, it was then that God showed up and hand delivered the ball to us. But it wasn't the ball that I needed. Honestly, I could care less about the ball. What I needed was my God to remind me that he was with me. That's what I needed. That he saw me, that his eye was on me, that he heard me. That he cared about little old me. That when I'm afraid and feeling weak, which it's hard to admit that we're weak, that's tough, right? But when I'm afraid and when I'm feeling that way and seeing that I don't know how to be a dad, let alone be a pastor or anything else or a husband, I need God to put his hand on my shoulder and reassure me 
and say, I'm with you. But he knew I needed to get to that vulnerable place first. To feel it first. Right? To bring it up to the surface. And it was then that he decided to show up. Not a moment too soon or a moment too late. And you know what? That's what we see in our passage here. Of course, that's true for you too. But we see it right here. God doing this for Peter, James, and John. Quickly look with, look with me at verses 6 through 8 as we wrap up here. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces. So they hear the booming voice, right? There's Moses, there's Elijah. No doubt they're wondering what in the world is going on. There's light shining. They're afraid. They fall down. And then Peter makes this really interesting statement about tents and all this stuff. But when the disciples heard this, the word coming out of the cloud, this is my son, listen to him. They fell on their faces and were terrified. But then what does Jesus do? Jesus comes and touches them and says, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. You see how Jesus took them into a place of vulnerability and revealed to them who he was and who they were before him. And in that moment, He stepped in and said, have no fear. In a moment of incredible fear, realizing their sins, realizing they're not worthy to see the glory of God, Jesus reaches down and reassures them. And in the end, they look up and see only him. They see only him. This is God's word for you and for me this morning. We look out upon a world that's rapidly changing and has all of us feeling vulnerable or insecure. As each year passes and we continue to say goodbye to friends and family who die. As perhaps some of us look at our children and our grandchildren and are tempted to worry about the future. If you're like me, that's very much the case. Let us hear the voice of God this morning saying to us. With his hand on our shoulder, have no fear. I am with you. When you're most vulnerable, I am with you. Not because our path ahead is easy. He doesn't say have no fear because it's easy. I see the future and it's all, you know, cupcakes and and rainbows and roses. No. Not because we're strong. He's not looking at our strength and saying don't fear because you're so strong and mighty. Right? No, he's not saying that. Or because we're good enough. Not because we have all the resources. He's like, oh, don't worry about it. You got enough money in the bank. You're all set. No. Why does he say, have no fear? Fear not because we have him. Right? And he has demonstrated his love for us. We know this more now than they did in the moment. Because he was going to go all the way to the cross. To show us the depth of his love and commitment to his people. Jesus loves you. If you do not know Jesus Christ, if he is not your treasure, if you have yet to really ask him or tell him that you want to follow him and seek him all your days, want to know him, if you haven't done that yet, please stay with me after the service. I'd love to talk with you about those things. I'll be right up here for a few minutes. I'll tell you more about relationship with Jesus. That is what we all most deeply need, no matter where we are or what's going on. Let's pray together now, okay? Amen.
Lord, there's so much to to think about in this story. But what I was impressed uh, to ponder, I believe by your spirit, Lord, was the timing of this moment. Your impeccable and perfect timing. You are so committed to us that you won't give us things or give us the things we most desperately need at the wrong time. You wait. Lord, let us likewise wait on your perfect timing. You know full well what you're doing. And we want to trust you. And that is one way we can, we can show you and show the world that you are our treasure and not the things we want. You are what we most deeply treasure and we will wait upon you. Thank you, God, for every good gift you give and for giving them at just the right time. We love you and we thank you. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.